0: But I'm saying, like, if you've done all the work, you've thought it through, you really understand the customer psychology, you understand what the competition is doing, and you've come to some conclusion that is different than what everybody else thought, that's actually the best thing you can do. You know, you have to go with those ideas or you're not an entrepreneur. Or, like, politicians would be the worst entrepreneurs in the world because they care what everybody else thinks, you know. And I think as an entrepreneur, you really can't care about what people think because they're going on conventional wisdom, they're going on very surface information, and the entrepreneur has to be the contrary. They have to be the ones that come up with the breakthrough, the breakthrough in thinking that cracks through all that convention.
1: I'm Rachel Hollis, and I've built a multi-million dollar media company with a high school diploma and the free information I found on the internet. In the 15 years that I've been building and scaling my company, I have become deeply passionate about helping other entrepreneurs to do the same. So each week, I'll be sharing tangible and tactical advice and inspiring interviews with the same intention. These are the tools to change your life and your business. This is the Rise Podcast. I'm freaking out today, guys. Uh, I have dreamed of having this podcast guest on forever and ever. And I've never like prepped so hard for anything in my life, which is hilarious. Um, ben, for people who are not a super nerd like me, who maybe don't know who you are, will you give us a little bit of backstory on what you do, what you're all about, all that jazz?
0: Sure, sure. So, well, I started uh, my career as an engineer, then I became an entrepreneur. Um, had a <laughs> challenging time as an entrepreneur, but it ended okay, um, which I wrote a book about called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Um, and then I, be- I started a venture capital firm called uh, Andreessen Horowitz in 2009. And that venture capital is basically investing in new businesses and um, you know, in exchange for equity rather than debt, and helping entrepreneurs build companies. So that's what I've been doing.
1: Very cool. I am um, i don't even really remember how I first heard about The Hard Thing About Hard Things, but I think that I discovered it pretty quickly after it had come out. And I have to tell you what a massive, big deal that book was in my life as an entrepreneur, uh, because when you are running and scaling a business, uh, I think in particular as a woman, I uh, didn't feel like there were a lot of resources or places that I could look for people who understood how hard it was. And I remember reading that book like it was the Bible. Like I, I, I know it maybe sounds silly, <laughs> but for me, it was the first time that I understood that it is hard for everybody. Uh, because if you're making this up as you go along, and I didn't go to, I didn't even go to college. Like I really, I just knew how to grow, and I knew how to make money, and I knew how to build a community. But I didn't have any other entrepreneurs in my life, and I, I just have to acknowledge what a gift that book was for me. I am not going to get emotional and cry on this podcast, um, but please know, I'm sure you hear it all the time, but please know, like how freaking helpful that was at that time in my life. So thank you.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that's really great to hear, um, because that's a big reason I wrote that book was, you know, when I was an entrepreneur, I can remember, you know, seeing other entrepreneurs, and 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 we were in you know the battle days of the of the dot com crash, and I would ask them, you know, hey, how's your how's your company going? And they would be like, oh, it's amazing, it's the greatest <laughs> experience of my life, <laughs> and then. You know, and I would just think to myself, well, I must be an idiot because my company is all messed up. <laughs> yeah. uh, but then, you know, as I kind of went further, first of all, they all went bankrupt. So they were lying to me at the time. But yeah. then as I became a venture capitalist and i meet with entrepreneurs, everybody kind of feels what you're feeling or what you felt. And um yeah, nobody talks about it. Nobody talks about why you feel that way and and how it goes and how you deal with it. So that was so I appreciate you saying that because that was a big reason I wrote it.
1: Yeah, I I have had the blessing in the last let's say 18 months to have more mentors come around me. Sort of like when you need mentors most is when you're early and starting out. Once you prove yourself, I feel like that's when people are like, oh let me hold your hand. Now that you don't necessarily need it anymore. Um but one of the things that a mentor it's like to- borrowing money. Exactly right. Uh one of the things that a mentor told me in the last year that has really resonated with me and sort of reminds me of your book is he said, you know, Rach, um A leader never has two good days in a row. Uh, it it just sort of is life that you could be at the highest high and then another part of your business will experience the lowest low that kind of, this is, this is what it is to do this work. So, um, one of the things that's in that book that I love so much was the wartime general and the peacetime general. Uh, will you talk about that a little bit for listeners to explain what that is and maybe give them some perspective on if they're inside of that world right now?
0: Sure. Yeah. And it was a concept. It's funny because I read, you know, I I was like, you didn't have a lot of uh, mentors early on and read kind of every management book and management books are really consistent in telling you, you know, you know, you should delegate, don't be a micromanager, be, you know, empower your people, all these kinds of things, never uh, yell at somebody in front of other people and so forth. And, and they're all um, reasonably good ideas, but it, it was, always struck me as weird that kind of the two entrepreneur kind of leaders that I looked up to most, Steve Jobs and Andy Grove, had a lot of famous incidents that were the opposite of that, where <laughs> like yeah. Steve Jobs was always yelling at people in public and, you know, there's a funny famous incident with Andy Grove where uh, somebody came in late to a meeting and he says to them in front of everybody, you know, you're wasting you know, the only thing I have in this life is time and you're wasting it. And so I'm like, OK, well, that's like not uh, what I read about. And how are these two so successful given that? And it really comes down to this idea of wartime and peacetime. And, you know, peacetime is, you know, I'd, I'd say is kind of Google under Eric Schmidt was a very kind of peacetime Company where they were trying to create lots of new ideas, empower people to innovate uh, these kinds of things, give them a lot of rope. And 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 that all is good if you have a monopoly position and you know you're a very strong position and you don't have kind of a burning competition or or some massive threat coming at you at the time. Um, But if you're fighting for survival, you end up in a different mode. And you know, if you know the history of Apple and And Intel, you know, those those two fought for survival a lot of the time, Um, where the speed and accuracy of decision-making kind of overrides all those other things that you'd like to have as a manager. Um, And that kind of is wartime. So, yeah, you care then about really little details, and you want to be involved in positions. And no, you're not delegating that all the way. You need to review it. Um, and you know, and you need to train people on the battlefield. So if they're doing something that's going to cause difficulty, and you need to reset their thinking or reset the culture, like yes, you may sacrifice them for the good of the whole uh, in a Confucian kind of way. So um, yeah, they're 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 different different modes, peacetime and we
1: wartime. Yeah, I think um, how that was helpful for me at the time that I was reading it was because I am someone who I read every single like I am the queen of any book on business or self-help, or I'm always trying to become a better leader. And I'm with you, you read this stuff and you're like, oh, I do. Yes, I want to create that. And I want to be this kind of person. But when you have over ordered on your inventory when you're not making your numbers. When a competition jumps up and all of a sudden the business that you were getting is going to someone else, suddenly creating this sort of beautiful, um, you know, culture where like it 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 changes and it has to change because if you don't. Um, lead in a different way, there won't be a business to lead nine months from now. Um, so, <laughs> yep. uh, yeah. survival is job one.
0: Exactly.
1: Yeah. So, highly, highly recommend that book for anybody who feels like they're walking through a hard season or just wants to get some perspective on what it looks like at a bigger level. Because I think for me as a small business owner, reading about such a massive company having similar struggles, and maybe that sounds idiotic, but it just, I thought, it's all me because I don't know what I'm doing and I'm getting this completely wrong. And the reality is I think all of us stumble on the way to creating something great. So I loved that book. And I just, if you're listening and you're in a hard season, freaking go get it. Um, the new book, I, okay. So let me just nerd out again. I feel like I'm having such a hardcore fan girl moment with you, which I maybe doesn't happen all the time. Um, but when I heard that you had a new book coming out, I was so excited. And I told my team, I was like, I don't know who the publisher is. Please find out. Maybe um, they will get me an advance copy. And yay, it was Harper, which is also my publisher. So that is great. Uh, <laughs> that works out. And I'm, I'm such a book nerd that I was nervous to open it because I loved the, the last one so much that I was afraid, like, what if this sucks? Just... Frankly. (laughs) And I was uh, afraid of that too. All right. And I, man, I'm like, what? uh, I was so pleasantly surprised. I read it in a day. I was nerding out so hard, partially because I'm also a huge history nerd. So finding a way to talk about business through the lens of history, I was like, this is my love language. Uh, Will you tell listeners about the new book and what the impetus was for writing that one?
0: Sure. So this is a book about um, culture and kind of how you how you move it is the way I like to phrase it because, um, you know, you don't really set it and you don't really dictate it even as a leader. You kind of influence it and move it and shape it. Uh, and it was the thing for me as CEO that I struggled with the most. And I can remember kind of starting out, you know, and I asked advice of kind of, the kind of really good old-time CEOs, and they all referred to culture. They would say things like, well, you know, pay attention to the culture, Ben. And I'd be like, okay, what does that mean? (laughs) And nobody ever had an answer for that. And the kind of books that I read on it were really narrow in terms of, you know, weird, like very small experiments that have been run in organizational psychology and things like that. And so it was a question that always bothered me and something that I never felt like I did a great job of as CEO. So I really wanted to to get an answer to this question. And, it, and it's a very nebulous thing because culture is, um, you know, it's all these things that really dictate what it's like to work at your company and how your company performs, but aren't in any of the management techniques. So it's not a KPI or an OKR or a mission statement or any of these things that you can learn how to do and read about it's, you know, does somebody answer a phone call? You know, do they show up to a meeting on time? Or are they late? Do they optimize a business relationship for the price or the partnership? Like how do they behave when you're not looking? And, you know, it just was such a, it ends up being such an important question because there is nothing kind of um, in the conventional way that you can do it. And even the conventional, Advice you get on culture is all wrong so people will say oh well you have to have an off site and you know, decide on your values and then you put your values in a book and then you tell people you're going to review them and get their performance review well like how do you know they even got that phone call let alone <laughs> returned it you don't know that and so that's not how it works and so I really wanted to kind of get into that and it turned out turns out because it's such a complex systems problem you really have to get Uh, I I would say the gestalt, you have to understand the whole thing to understand anything. And, you know, which made the book um, both kind of complex and fun to write.
1: So just, um, I'm going to probably misquote you here, but uh, because I left my copy at home like a loser because it's all dog-eared and written in. um, But there was a line that really struck me. It was something to the extent of culture is what happens when you're not around it's what your team does when you're not there to tell them what to do is that accurate
0: yeah that's that that's right um and Okay.
1: Oh, I was just gonna say. And if listeners are, because I feel like this is such a buzzword right now, everybody's talking about culture and has been for the last few years. But if you're listening to this and you're like, "Oh my gosh, I don't," you know, I own a coffee house or I own a, a accounting firm or whatever, and I have zero control over what our team does or what the culture is because I have we have it's a mess. Where do they even start?
0: Yeah, so it's interesting. And, and I think a great starting point is, um, you know, comes from the way of the samurai, which you have to start at the definition, which is a culture is not a set of beliefs. It's a set of actions. And which is kind of where the title of the book comes from. Like, it's not what you believe. It's not what you say. It's not the values you put on the wall. It's not what you tweet. It's what you do. It's
1: what you do That's yeah.
0: who you are as a company and a culture. And how do you get people to do what you need them to do so you can be who you, you know, who you want to be? And, you know, it turns out to be subtle and simple. I'll give you kind of um, one quick example that uh, we have. So we're, we're, like, relatively small, like a lot of your listeners, and that, you know, the firm's maybe 180 people. Um, and as a venture capital firm, like, one of the things, because we serve, we're in service of entrepreneurs, that's kind of the business um, you want every employee to treat entrepreneurs in that process and that struggle and that difficulty that, that you've been through with utmost respect. because and, and whatever, whether they're doing well or poorly, you at least have to appreciate how hard it is. Um, and we really wanted that in the culture. But that's a real challenge in venture capital because the behavioral dynamic that drives the way people actually behave is – we have money, you <laughs> want money, you have to come to us to get the money, and then we get to tell you whether you got it, and so what that does to people's psychology is it makes them you know, think they're the big person and the entrepreneur is the little person, and so we really had to overcorrect to get people back to where we wanted them to be, and so one of the things we put in place in the culture is if you're late for a meeting with an entrepreneur, you you are fined $10 a minute. And so what that does is, okay, you had to go to the bathroom, no problem, $50. You know, you, <laughs> Oh, you had a really important phone call you were on, no problem, $100. And people would come to me and they'd go, well, why am I paying to work here? You know, that's not fair. Like, you should be paying me. I'm working hard. I'm, you know, I have to go to the bathroom. Dah, 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 dah. And, I, and that's the question that I wanted because the question is what drives the behavior because then I say, look, I don't think you really understand how hard it is to build a company. Because if you did, you wouldn't be wasting people's time. You would plan going to the bathroom. You would plan that phone call. And I know you can do it. Because, like, let's imagine you were getting married today. I don't think you'd be, like, five minutes late to the altar because you had to go to the bathroom. Yeah. I think you would have already gone to the bathroom. You know, like, so, yeah, I know you can do it. And that kind of reprograms, because every time you go to a meeting, you, you go, damn, why am I planning to go to the bathroom? Why do I have to figure this out? I didn't have to do this at my last job. And it's because, oh, I know why, because it's really hard to build a company. And so that kind of gets it into people's nervous system. And that's, these are the kind of set of techniques that you end up having to use to kind of move a culture from where it is to where you need it to be.
1: Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more debit card users listen up you've worked hard for your money now it's time to make it work even harder for you with discover cashback debit everyone can get cash back on everyday debit card purchases that's right earn on things like gas groceries and even that midday latte and to top it off there are no fees period yep that means you won't be charged fees on your checking account. Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. So I just, I want to ask a deeper question here because I want to make sure that I'm understanding this Because this is a really interesting way to approach this, I think. Now, I'm not super familiar with VC at all, so please forgive me if I'm going to ask the dumbest question in the world right now, but our People are are other people investing in your firm, and then that money you use to invest in companies, or is it you have your own? Okay, so the reason I asked that although we that... invest
0: also, so okay, so some of the, the way you think of it, some of my money, some other people's money.
1: So the reason that I asked that is I think there's something, forgive me again if I'm incorrect here, but it sounds almost countercultural that your business is founded around serving the entrepreneurs because I would guess that most people would. VCs around serving the investors. Is that an accurate guess? Yeah. So there's,
0: there's definitely um, a tension there. And so it's a strategy on our part um, where philosophically, we believe that the way you get good venture capital is the best entrepreneurs want to work with you. Yeah. Um, because unlike uh, real estate investing or stock picking or any of these other kinds of things, you, everybody doesn't have access to every deal. So some firms get basically, you know, to use a sports analogy, the number one draft pick every single year. Um, and those uh, firms will tend to perform better. And so your philosophy of, in, in in our view, your philosophy of what it means to build a company ends up being kind of the most important thing, not only, for kind of having the firm that we want to have, but also for kind of returns to investors. So, um, you know, other people have different ideas, which is, you know, like, we have to maximize our money. And
1: yeah, no, I, I love it. And the reason I bring it up is I'm wondering for listeners who are trying to build a culture or trying to build a business that is sort of the, the the industry is zigging and they're choosing to zag, like you're you're doing something that's a little bit different than maybe what other major players are doing. And I obviously I know you guys are a major player, but what I'm trying to get at is how do you sort of stick your flag in the ground and do something that's different than what people are used to seeing. Once it's proven and once you're seeing results, well, it's, it's really easy for everybody to bandwagon. But when you first made that decision to have the focus be on the entrepreneurs, what gives you the courage or the gumption to do that? Because what I'm trying to get at is if we have listeners who are trying to do something similar but feeling discouraged because they don't see any examples in their industry, how do you, how do you make that choice?
0: Well, that's, you know, you've kind of hit on the essence of being an entrepreneur. And what I always tell kind of young people is, if you have a business idea and everybody thinks it's a good idea, it's probably the wrong idea because it's too obvious. If you have a business idea and most people go like, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard, (laughs) that you're actually more likely to be on the right track. And so much about entrepreneurship is betting on yourself and betting on your ideas. And... Now, that doesn't mean you could just, like, whatever, be getting high in your dorm room and, like, come up with a stupid idea. and Like, that's a good idea. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying, like, if you've done all the work, you've thought it through, you really understand the customer psychology, you understand what the competition is doing, and you've come to some conclusion that is different than what everybody else thought, that's actually the best thing you can do. Um, So, you know, you have to go with those ideas or you're not an entrepreneur or, You know, like, uh, it's not a good... Like, politicians would be the worst entrepreneurs in the world because they care what everybody else thinks, you know. And I think as an entrepreneur, you really can't care about what people think because they're going on conventional wisdom. They're going on very surface information. What does the crowd believe? And the entrepreneur has to be the contrary. They have to be the ones that come up with the breakthrough. The breakthrough in thinking that cracks through all that convention. And that's when you get really the the most exciting outcomes.
1: Absolutely. Uh, One of the things that I I said this earlier, but one of the things I loved about the book was how often you use history to illustrate your points. Will you share some of the lessons that are in the book and what inspired you to choose those leaders in particular?
0: Sure, sure. So, well, one... um, is the is Toussaint Overture and the Haitian Revolution. And, uh, you know, it's an amazing story because it's the only successful slave revolt in human history. And, you know, it got me kind of wondering, like, why, why no other successful slave revolts? And it just turns out that, you know, culturally, slave, slavery is very dehumanizing, and it's very destructive to culture because it takes away any long-term thinking, which is essential, kind of an essential building block of how you build a a strong culture because you don't own your own life or your own tomorrow. Um, And then you go, well, military culture has to be very long-term thinking, and then it's very high trust because you have to be able to, you know, you need people to trust the order to carry them out and so forth. And so the story of the Haitian Revolution is really the story of Toussaint. Kind of transforming slave culture into military culture, and he did it through like a variety of amazing techniques. And one of the things that uh, a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with, and I talked about kind of Uber struggling with this um, in the book, is what do you do with ethics? <laughs> and and you know, people like, because people think, oh yeah, I'm a good person, therefore I'll have an ethical company. Well, maybe you know, but like what's really happening that you have to realize is every kind of, you're putting all these incentives down to go get the number, to go win the deal, to do this. But like, what are you doing that's as strong to stop people from, you know, cheating or breaking the law or this and that? And a lot of kind of entrepreneurs will just assume that people will do the right thing or they'll say, do the right thing, which is not enough. Um, And then they get into trouble, they go over the line. And so, you know, he has this problem uh, of, you know, how do you manage that in the Haitian revolution and it was really interesting his approach to it. So this was a war over sugar, the kind of war in Haiti, and you had three European superpowers, the French, the Spanish, and the British all fighting. And it's a very mercenary war as you would expect because it's over sugar. And they basically paid soldiers via pillaging. So Toussaint's in there with his slave army. They, they have nothing. They're half starving. They're, you know, they're, they're naked almost. They barely have any clothes. Um, and he puts down this rule that no pillaging. And everybody's shocked. They're like, what do you mean? Like, hey, you know, don't you want to win the war? you got to motivate the soldiers, all these kinds of things. And he's like, no, look, because we're fighting. They're fighting for sugar. We're fighting for liberty. And you can't achieve liberty if you take liberty away. Mm. And so the stories in it are really remarkable in that, you um, You know, you'd have the story of like the French go in, they set the plantation on fire, they kill all the animals, they start raping everybody, they steal all the stuff, and then the slave army comes through the same town, and they touch nothing. You know, nobody's touched, no violence, no nothing. They ended up uh, supporting the locals in Haiti. Ended up supporting Toussaint um, over uh, the European soldiers, which is you know, I mean, these are Europeans, the European locals supported the slave army over the European armies, you know, it just shows the power of e- of ethics. And you know, he did a, a number of like, really amazing things to, to achieve those outcomes. And to the point of, like the white women in the colony referred to Toussaint as father, like he was family to them, um, which isn't you would never think you could achieve something like this. If you read anything in kind of the news today, you'd go like, you can't overcome like that level of racism mm-hmm. with that kind of behavior, but he absolutely did. And so it's a quite amazing story. Um But, you know, one of the reasons I use these examples is it's difficult for people to see their own culture. So I, I you know, and I went through this a lot, like I would really emphasize with my entrepreneurs, you know, you need to pay attention to new employee orientation and how that works and what it's like your first week on the job in your company. And literally nobody would listen to me on that and I would explain to them all the reasons. Um, So the way I address it in the book is um, through a prison story. And the story is basically uh, Shaka Senghor who's in prison for murder, um, comes into jail and his first day out of, first day in jail, uh, he's in the rec area and a prisoner, walks up to another prisoner and stabs him in the neck. And the prisoner bleeds out and dies. And the person who stabbed him throws the shank that he stabbed him with in the trash can and goes to the cafeteria and has a sandwich. And Shaka says to me when he's telling me the story, he said, so I had to ask myself, could I do that? And I said, well, what do you mean, could you do that? You were in for murder, you already did that. And he said, no, 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 Ben, you don't understand. What I did was, I'm on the street, I'm doing a drug deal, I'm paranoid anyway, I've got the gun in my pocket, these guys come up, one of the guys I know, the other guy I don't know, he's not supposed to be there, he's not supposed to come out of the car, he comes out of the car, he's a threat to me, I react and I shoot him. That's what I did. This guy spent weeks fashioning a two-liter bottle into a weapon, and then decides, am I going to wound this guy or am I going to kill this guy? Will I stab him in the stomach or stab him in the neck? And he decides he's going to kill him, and he kills him and then throws him in the trash and keeps it moving to the chow hall and has a sandwich like it's nothing. He said, I couldn't do that. But I had to ask myself, could I do that in order to survive? And so that's really the essence of new employee orientation, which is when somebody comes to work at your company, they're not going, oh, what are the values? What do these guys say? They're going, oh, that person, that person making all that money just took credit for her work, for Mm -hmm. somebody else's work.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Oh, that's how you get ahead here. I have to, can I do that? Because that's what you have to do to succeed in this company. Mm -hmm. That's the, that's the orientation. And so, you know, I think people can see culture more easily in things that they're, that aren't their culture. And You want to know, like, why is prison culture so violent? Well, like, when you get oriented that way, um, that guarantees it. And why is your company a certain way? Well, what is it like when new people come on? Like, what do they learn about behaviors uh, that they're going to emulate and they're going to copy? And most people don't even think about that. They don't pay attention to it. They think that giving somebody a card with their corporate values is going to do anything. Um, But every employee has already been to other companies where the corporate values are just hypocrisy, because there are a bunch of things that nobody follows. So, you know, kind of getting into those type of issues, you know, helps me describe sort of the things that, that are effective and are ineffective.
1: I am taking my four children away this weekend to go skiing. market.com/reach slash reach so for people who have let's say people have even gone so far as to they've written down their values they 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 know what they want the culture to be how is it how do you make it stick Because I think you've touched on it a couple times. A lot of times leaders will hear a conversation like this and they're like, okay, we're going to do it. And they they figure out what (laughs) they want it to be and they announce it one time at the meeting and then nobody touches it uh, until next year's all hands meeting. So how do you or how have you seen leaders really implement and make something truly what it is, not just something that we say or something that we put on the wall?
0: Yeah, so I think that um, one of the keys to it is they have to bump into it all the time. Um, And there's a kind of variety of techniques that I go through in the book, but um, they're everything. So, you know, one thing is that we talked about before is what I call a shocking role. So, you know, I gave the example of, okay, you pay a $10 minute fine. Okay, that's a shock to most people when they have to pay that. And it kind of is something that they're confronted with all the time every day. You know, one of the things that, in you know, from the Haitian Revolution along those lines was to, to outlawed kind of uh, officers having concubines. And so you married officers having concubines. And that was just a shock to people because, you know, the, the other armies, of course, are raping, and so these guys can't even cheat on their wives, What the, you know, what's going on. They need to know why that is. Um, and it really, it was a rule to set a culture of trust, that your word is important. And so that's something that they bumped into all the time. Every time they were jealous of the kind of other soldiers having concubines, they had to go, okay, well, look, my word matters in this army. Um, And so that's something that you bump into every day. Another kind of technique that's very effective is if there's a story that's so good um, that it becomes lore in the company, then everybody knows that story. And it gets into everybody's consciousness that that's how they need to behave. And probably the, you know, the greatest example of a long-lasting culture is the, uh, the samurai culture of Bushido or the way of the warrior. And they were fantastic at this. And one of, the, one of uh, my favorite stories is uh, the story of the Chaikan uh, Marikashi, uh, which is basically a genealogy. So in ancient Japan, the biggest status symbol was your genealogy. Uh, like basically the scroll of all your ancestors, and you know, you know who your grandfather and great grandfather and so forth, and your whole family tree. And there was a guy by the name of Lord Soma who had this amazing um, genealogy, like recorded, and it was on this scroll, and everybody knew it. It had a name, the Chikan Marakoshi, and everybody was so jealous of him. A samurai working for him, who was a very mediocre samurai, clumsy, not very talented and so forth but he really liked him because he was a really kind of good person and very loyal um and so one day lord soma's house catches fire and it is burning like i mean engulfed in flames burning down there's no way to save it and the genealogy is in the house and so the samurai says um and lord was so sad about the genealogy and samurai says i'm going to go in and get it And Lord Summer says, no, you're guaranteed to die. I don't want to lose you and the scroll. Like, it's gone. It's over. Don't worry about it. Before he can finish talking, the samurai's in the house. So after the house burns down, they go out to to look for him. And sure enough, like, he's burnt to a crisp, face down. um, But they notice there's a pool of blood around his body. And they can't figure out why he's bleeding. And so they turn him over. And there's a slit in his stomach. And they reach into the slit, and inside his stomach is the genealogy. Um, he cut himself open and saved the scroll, you know, for everybody. And that that went on to be known as the blood genealogy. And it's a story of, look, you can redeem yourself entirely by being loyal. That's how important loyalty is. And you could be mediocre your whole career, but be a legend you know, if you have loyalty to that degree. So that, that kind of story sets a culture in a way that all the talk could never do um, because who could forget a story like that <laughs> or a name like
1: that, the blood yeah. genealogy. I'm I'm smirking as you're telling this story because I'm like, who else uses these analogies to explain modern day business principles? <laughs> this is my favorite. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm curious as you're speaking, it's the first time that it's like really clicking in for me, how often you're speaking through essentially like war, soldiers, because even in prison, I'm thinking it's a similar, like, why is that culture so similar to what it is to create a business? Well, I
0: think, you know, a lot of the examples are kind of extreme situations. And you get a lot of clarity from that, because, you know, it's hard to go, well, you know, if you do this, you know, people will be political. And people go, okay, yeah, I'll have some politics, whatever. But, like, okay, if you don't do this, then everybody's going to die. And people <laughs> get like the sharpness about it. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's, you know, works effectively in that way. And that was certainly the case in the Haitian Revolution and in the kind of samurai culture. Hey, we actually, one of my favorite stories in samurai culture is like a key on culture is you have to balance things because they can get out of hand if they're interpreted all one way. So, for example, um, at Slack, my friend Stuart Butterfield uh, had this cultural value, which was empathy. Um, And, you know, what he meant is you need to understand somebody else's point of view before you kind of push your own. You need to, like, be empathetic to why they think a certain way about something, which is an important thing in a company, right, because somebody in marketing has a different view than somebody in engineering, and you need to understand what that perspective is before you start pushing your agenda, and that was what he meant. Um, But what they did was it became sort of weaponized in the sense that, you know, if somebody got a bad review from their manager, they would say, oh, to their manager, you're off culture because you're not being very empathetic. Mm And so that's like such a corruption of the idea. But that happens all the time in culture. And so if you go to the samurai, one of the things that they did was, and one of my favorite stories is they had this honor culture, which is basically, and and it was kind of for protection, because if somebody insults you, you know, that's a little bit of a diagnostic on whether they can, like, steal from you, kill you, do all these things. So, like, you never let anybody insult you under any circumstances. Like, if they insult you, they're going to die. That's kind of the culture. So there's a story of the samurai who has a flea on his shoulder. And another person says, excuse me, you have a flea on your shoulder. And the samurai cuts his head off. <laughs> and he's like, well, why'd you cut his head off? And he's like, well, you know, I'm not an animal. I don't have fleas. <laughs> you know, that was an insult. And so that's the, you know, that's how far it went. So they kind of had to pair that virtue, as we call it. And we call them virtues as opposed to values because what you do, not what you believe. Um, and the, the kind of counter to that was politeness. And politeness in Japanese culture is a really amazing thing um, because it's much more than it was what, what it is in our culture. And if you've ever been to Tokyo, you kind of experience it. It's quite a thing. Um, And what it means in Japanese culture, in the samurai culture, is it's the greatest way to show love and respect for the person that you're dealing with. And so it's the complete set of rules for not getting your head cut off, in in a sense. Because if you respect me, you will treat me like this. You'll bow like this. You'll serve me tea in this way, and so forth. And so there's a very, very elaborate scheme. But then you still have to keep that in check because if what if people are just lying to kind of get your good graces, and they're being polite, but they don't really mean it, and so they have this thing that politeness without veracity is empty. There, it's nothing, and so they really kind of construct uh, a culture that's got many dimensions to it, so that they get it right, and uh, you know, and and this is something that you really have to ask. You know, so coming up with Okay, here are the ideas of what we wanna be, but then like how are they gonna play out when implemented is a is a kind of a big part of, of what you're trying to do.
1: Absolutely. Uh, so before uh, I want to be mindful of your time and before we wrap up, I'm going to just ask a super selfish question because how often do I get the opportunity to speak to you? Never once in my life. Um, and, and maybe this is something too that listeners can get a bit out of. Um, I have been an entrepreneur for 15 years and in the last 18 months, it has exploded and scaled to a place that. I didn't even know was possible, and I'm the biggest dreamer on the planet, so this has been a crazy ride. Um, as Congratulations. We, thank you. Uh, as we're going into 2020, coming off 2019, where um, just I can't even express to you the revenue growth that we've had. Um, and we're laying out budgets for, for 2020. And how do you, um, keep dreaming big, but also do you try and go as big as you did? Do you try and like, I have no concept for how to set goals when you just smash the absolute crap out of what you thought you could do. Does that make sense? So, and I, and I'm like, who do I ask about this? (laughs) So I'm going to ask Ben Horowitz.
0: There's a lot in that question. Um, the mistake that people most often make in terms of kind of setting the goal too high, it, you know, it does have to do with budgeting. So you say, okay, I think we can triple revenue next year. What do you all need to do that? And then what happens then is, you know, you can end up starting a contest of, you know, among your team of, okay, who's got the most ambitious spend plan because they all have this incentive to kind of build a big organization. And the thing that is dangerous with really, really fast growth, I mean, there's multiple dangers, but one of the big ones is communication breaks down. Another big one is culture, uh, where you're bringing in, if you bring in kind of more people from another culture than you have in your culture, you better be really systematic about how to integrate them in. Otherwise, you're going to end up with a different company than you had.
1: Absolutely.
0: Uh, And so those are, you know, so the, the kind of antidote for that is you go, okay, this is how much we're going to increase spending, and then this is what I want to achieve. And you've got to get your goal within that envelope. So you don't give them one without the other. You don't ask them how much they want to spend. You tell them how much they're going to get to spend. Um, and that, that, that process just works much better because you want people to get the goal by being thinking smart, not by throwing money at the problem. And so whatever you do, you want the incentive to not be to throw money at every problem. Uh, then the second kind of big danger is for kind of any entrepreneurial endeavor, the most difficult thing is, is I, I'm sure you know, is like product market fit. How do you get that product right for that market so it really grows. And, and entrepreneurs have done it, so they take it for granted, but there are very few people in the world who can do that. And so if you take on more than, say, one big new thing that requires product market fit, like you can do a large number of things that add to your current product market fit, but if you're trying to go for a new product market fit, you probably, there, there may be one or two people in the entire company who can do that. And even at like a place like Google or Facebook, there's still only maybe a dozen people who can do that. Um, so it's a very, like that innovation capability is uh, always going to be scarce. And so I went, kind of go, okay, we're going to do five things like the thing we just did um i think that's very dangerous but if you say okay we're gonna take the thing we just did and we're gonna make it 10 times bigger that's like a more reasonable thing to do in terms of scale
1: dang it i feel like i just got like that i i'm gonna nerd about about that i was taking notes like i was in school so thank you so much for indulging me in that question and even shoot even if it didn't help anybody else i'm gonna go um just let my heart explode over that answer. So thank you so much. Um, Hey, I just I before we wrap up, I just want to acknowledge you again. I don't know when I'm ever going to get the chance. So um, I I hope that you get the opportunity all the time to hear from entrepreneurs who have been not just the people that you work with um, in VC, but people like me who you might never meet, but your work has been um, super influential too. So I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you and thank you for the first book and thank you for this one too because both have really um, been, uh, have a special place in my heart. And if people are listening to this and they want to read more and they totally do uh, because it's samurai and prison and Haiti and so many things that you never thought you were going to use as examples to learn about your business where can they find you and where can they find the books
0: Uh, well they can find the book everywhere where great books are sold including (laughs) you know Amazon Barnes and Noble I think it's in a lot of the airport bookstores and all that kind of thing as well Um, and they can find me at um, a16z.com is our website um, stands for Andreessen Horowitz a16z.com uh, and uh, thank you so much for having me on the show this has been a lot of fun every day our world gets a little more connected but a little further
1: apart but then there are moments that remind us to be more human